portion first. If you have a prayer request that you would like uh, Pastor Danny to lead the congregation in uh, in a moment here, you can type it in the, com in the comments below or you could uh, text uh, Jennifer or Rebecca. You have your phone, Rebecca? Okay. Yeah, quit playing Space Invaders. Um, uh, people say, what is Space Invaders? <laughs> <laughs> old, old, yes. Come on, the, the tech guy knows what it is. All right, that's when video games were cool. You just went, beep, beep, beep. Yeah. All you did is move left, right, and shoot the gun. That's all you did. Oh, the good old days. They hand me those, anybody they hand you those controllers? I, they, got a, they got buttons here, they got buttons here. I don't know how to do it, and I tell you, I get in those games, I just get my guy running around in circles, shooting people I'm not supposed to shoot. I don't know. Oh, well. All right, moving on from video games, we're going to be in our Life of Messiah study tonight in Matthew chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 9. I've got a little bit of a more provocative title tonight uh, to tonight's Bible study um, from uh, Ariel Ministries, although this title is not... Uh, under any uh, influence by uh, Life of Messiah or Ariel Ministries, <laughs> I'll get them off the hook. But I entitled tonight's uh, Bible study, Inviting Prostitutes to Dinner. Inviting Prostitutes to Dinner. Now, is that not relevant to today? Not in any houses that are represented. Well, I don't know. We'll see. Don't answer until we finish our study tonight. Um, we're moving forward in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, we're still early in his ministry. We've just studied how he healed a paralytic man who was born of four of his friends. They cut through the roof, let him down, and Jesus declares he has the authority to forgive sins, thus declaring that he's actually God. Remember the Pharisees in that story, the whole thing when Jesus is clearly saying, I'm God, uh, they don't say a word. Remember, we understand why this is, because according to first century uh, uh, rabbinic and the Sanhedrin laws of procedure, if a ministry was determined to be messianic, the Sanhedrin would set a delegation out to evaluate it. And step number one was simply to observe. They were to go there and watch what was happening and say nothing, just evaluate. And if they at the end of it, they would go back, share what they found with the rest of the Sanhedrin or whoever in the political structure. And if they found that movement to be um, significant, then they would move on to the second phase of the investigation, which was interrogation, where they would go watch something, then they would ask questions. And so the first phase has just begun, and they were, uh, Jesus, I believe, does exactly what he does because he knows that they are there evaluating his claims as Messiah. So he makes it very clear when he heals this paralytic, I am claiming to be God. I, out of Leviticus chapter 4, have the authority to forgive sins. Now, tonight we're going to move ahead in, in the storyline, and um, we're going to find tonight, as Jesus is doing all these things, he's still growing his inner core. He's the 12 apostles. And um, uh, sometimes I think we have the idea that, you know, Jesus started off day one and there were 12 guys there following him. Didn't work that way. It was his process. Now tonight, the storyline that we're going to give tonight is given in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But since this story involves the calling of Matthew, 
seems to me that we'll, you know, out of reference to his gospel account, we'll, we'll use Matthew's account uh, to kind of give us what he feels needs the, the Holy Spirit obviously gives for us to know tonight. So Matthew chapter 9, we're going to pick things up in our story uh, in verse number 9, all right? Matthew chapter 9, verse number 9, the Bible says, And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of customs, and he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. Now we're going to get a lot, unpack a lot of information just out of this one verse. You may think, oh, okay, that's interesting. I hope that I'm going to make you think a little bit more, especially when, as we do in Life of Messiah, we bring in all the gospel accounts and the information they share with us. But it begins in verse 9 saying, And as Jesus passed forth from thence, we know that um, Jesus was in Capernaum from the last story that he departed thence from. And what story was that? Well, that was the story that we just talked about, the healing of the paralytic. Um, so we, we don't know exactly how long the time has passed since the events, but we do know that Matthew is telling us that Jesus is now leaving Capernaum uh, to continue his ministry of declaring the good news that Messiah was here. He was going to leave Capernaum and start going to the other areas and declaring all across the land that the Messiah was here, the good news, the kingdom of God was at hand. He was going to continue that message. And here we meet Matthew and we learn some things about him. Now, in Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter number 5, if I were to, you were to go to those two accounts, you'd find that when, when they introduce him, they refer to this man's name as Levi. Interesting, isn't it? Now, does that mean he has two separate names? Hmm. Well, I, don't know, I guess you could say yeah, or no, yeah, or nay. And matter of fact, in in Luke and Mark, we are told that he is Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Now, this is also interesting. I don't know exactly how I feel in this. There's people that you know. This is for smarter guys than me to to figure out. But um, uh, we are told that uh, the son of Alphaeus is also said of a man, one of the other twelve, named James. Now we're talking what's referred to, he's called James the Lesser, because we know a lot about James and John, the sons of thunder. This is a different James, another James in the group of 12, and one of the few things we know about him is he was a son of Alphaeus. Now does that mean that him and, and Matthew are brothers? There are some that are on different debates besides that argument. I, I don't know if I hold a strong opinion. Pastor Danny, have you even thought of that? Is that, is that, that hasn't risen to the C4C level of uh, apologetics yet. I, I, don't know, I, I don't know how I feel, but it is interesting. Um, you know. But bottom line is the Bible does record two different names of him. Now, my first thought would be that, that Matthew is a Greek name for the Hebrew name Levi or Levi. Um, no, that's really that's not the solution for this. Um, it's also interesting that in both accounts of, in the King James, both here and in Luke 5.27, it says there was a man named Matthew or a man named Levi. Now, some of the solution that Dr. Frutenbaum brings in that I think is interesting is that the Greek words that are used for named in, in Matthew versus Luke are two different Greek words. Uh, in Matthew's account, it's the common word based on the word lego, which is a very first-year, you know, <laughs> first-year uh, Greek word, um, I call, um, versus in Luke's account, the, the Greek word is, is far more specific to a name regarding a family name, a heritage name, if you will. And so most people think that 
Matthew in the Hebrew believes that what his name means is the gift of Yahweh. The gift of Yahweh. And most people think, several of the guys, smarter guys, Dr. Fruitbaum, think that Matthew was his uh, given, the name given to him after he became a follower of Jesus. That Jesus maybe was the very one that said, your name is now going to be Matthew. We know that Jesus does this with Peter, right? So it's not unusual sometimes for the Lord to do that. And I don't know in the culture of that day, maybe it was something that was done. But uh, many people think that Matthew was the name given to him after his conversion, but Levi was his birth name, that it was his heritage name, which would make, does make sense. Um, And the fact that his name was changed is probably understandable from this standpoint. Uh, Does anybody know tonight from what we just read, what was Matthew's job? He is a tax collector. Anybody in here like April 15th? Only those who don't make really, I just don't want to offend anybody. You know, if you have a lesser income, you probably look forward to that. So you have that shopping spree, which we're going to talk about here in a minute. So don't enjoy it too much. Um, But tax collectors in that day were not real popular people. And I don't know if that was an avenue of grace that the Lord said, you're no longer going to be known as Levi, but now you're going to be known as Matthew, the gift of Yahweh. And I don't know, if nothing else tonight, I would say, isn't it great that when you and I get saved, the Bible says there's a new name written down in glory, and that we're a new creation in Christ, and that you, as a believer, establish a unique relationship with God that only you and him have. Now, I'm not saying unique in the way you got there, but in the relationship, the fellowship one, you, you and I are uniquely, individually special to God. That's, a, that's an amazing concept, and one, by the way, that most Christians do not embrace. And we're going to talk about that more here in a little bit. Um, now, we're told that Matthew was sitting at the receipt of customs. As you all have figured out, means he's a tax collector. They were called publicans. Anybody know why they were called publicans? Um, public, basically in the Greek one, it means those public funding, public funds, public money. Publicans were ones who were in charge or responsible for handling public money. Um, usually, though, they handled it in that day not very honestly. <laughs> and I, thought, I wrote in my notes, I guess we should call the president and Congress publicans. Right? Uh, they handle the public money, but not very honestly. Um, the publicans were also Jews who went to work for Rome collecting taxes. So there's another dynamic. Not only were they tax collectors, and nobody likes a tax collector, but they were tax collectors for the Roman government who were the occupiers of, of Jerusalem and all of, of Israel. And so by the core Jewish society, they were considered to be traitors. Youch. They are also considered to be very dishonest. Now, apparently, uh, it's interesting how the Romans set this whole system of taxes up, um, but at the end of it all, a tax collector was given a certain area that he was responsible for, or a certain role of individuals, and the Roman government basically said that role is responsible for this amount of taxes. And the, the tax collector had a little bit of, well, a fair amount of leeway in how, in how much of that tax he collected. 
So even if you knew that your taxes, let's say, needed to be $1,000 and you go to pay the tax collector and he decided that with, according to his math, you didn't owe $1,000, you owed $1,500. You, you had in that day, and kind of like ours, very little recourse. And if you didn't pay your taxes, they would come take all your stuff or imprison you. I mean, it was, they had a lot of power. And the, the, the Roman government, as long as they got their amount, they didn't care what a tax collector did. Um, now, that, that they didn't say they had to do these kind of things, but it was typically what was done. And especially if you were a Jewish guy, took this job, and everybody, everybody in your community turns their back on you, throws you out, what would you do? You know, if you're my personality type, yeah, yeah you know, say, how much are your taxes? Um, you know, that's a really nice Corvette you have out there. I'd hate to see that part of the dues, you know, dues due. Um, um, but, they, so they were not very well-loved people. And they were not considered trustworthy at all. Matter of fact, the, in Dr. Frutenbaum, he mentions that um, there were many writings of the day that they weren't even allowed to be a, a, a witness in any circumstances, their word was considered untrustworthy. Even if they, I don't know, they watched somebody kill somebody else, you know, and they said, did you see it, you know? If they were in court, their word was not taken as, as viable. That, that's how untrustworthy the, the, the crowd con, considered them. Uh, so they were very much shunned and expelled from social and religious life. Um, and you can understand why, you know, they weren't liked or why they weren't trusted. They were usually financially fairly wealthy because they took their countrymen's money. <laughs> Sound familiar? <laughs> you know, how is it that, you know, certain speakers of the House, both Republicans and Democrats, by the way, but Pelosi comes to mind as maybe the poster child for this, uh, Mitch McConnell on the Senate side, how do these people come in with a fixed salary, and but yet by the time they retire, somehow they're multi, 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 multi-millionaires. How does that work? And whose money are they taking? Sounds really familiar. The, the, old, the old thing, the more things change, the more they stay the same, you know? Um, here, here they go. Uh, but bottom line is, these guys were not very well liked. Matter of fact, the rabbis in rabbinic writings compared tax collectors in, you know, in the Old Testament writing to locusts. You know, whenever you see locusts in the Old Testament come up in the storyline or used as a, a metaphor, they're these million that come in the land, they just consume everything. And again, I would say, you know, I think all of us tonight to some degree can understand that. Now, when it comes to publicans, one thing that you may not know, those of you who got everything I've said so far, you maybe you've understood, did you know there were two different kinds of publicans? This I did not know, but that's why I study under Dr. Frutenbaum. Um, the first kind was a, a tax collector that was basically an income tax collector. Their job was to monitor how much you need, you know, kind of like we need to declare your income. Remember, we saw Joseph and Mary have to show up for a census, and I think the, the part of that reason was tax rolls. Um, and, and nobody really liked those guys. But there was even a more hated kind of publican, and that was the ones that were customs or toll tax collectors. And that's what is told of us in verse number 9 when it says, He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. You know how when Jen and I leave the country on a cruise and we come back in, we used to have to sign a little form that said how much goods and material, you know, if we were bringing over $800 an individual in back into the States, we had to declare it, and then they would tax you on it. Now, you guys know that we have, we have never, 
we've never we've never risen to that. We get $1,600 between the two of us, but we've never gotten anywhere near that. But some people are over there, you know, having to record this stuff or report if they were honest, I guess. But same kind of deal with customs. And these kind of guys were monitoring business. Matthew is telling us this is what he was. He was probably taxing uh, the coming in and going out of both fish as food and other various supplies coming in and out of his territory. You see, if you were to look at the political map, certainly Rome was the boss, but Rome had different tetrarchs, different kings, if you want to call them that, that ruled different areas. And we know that that there he was on, on um, the one side in Capernaum, but if you went across the Sea of Galilee, you would become in Herod Antipas' uh, territory. And so Capernaum was kind of a border town. So it was clearly probably a place they would set up a, a, a customs tax that when you brought stuff in either to sell or you were taking it out to go sell it somewhere else, it'd get taxed. So can you imagine you get taxed leaving Herod's area to go to Antipas' area and then you got taxed coming back. You were just getting taxed coming and going. That would never happen to us, now would it? You know how many times the dollar you get gets taxed from the gasoline tax to the food tax to the supply tax to the clothing tax to we get taxed. I mean, it's same, again, same deal. So bottom line was they didn't like this guy very much and it's Dr. Frutenbaum theorizes and it makes sense. It, it's very possible that Matthew was the one that was in charge of administering taxes to the business that we know Zebedee, James and John and Peter and Andrew, the business they ran. Jesus picked some pretty interesting individuals to make up his 12, didn't he? You know, since Melody's here tonight, I think back in the early days when I was playing mad scientist with you and Lori, you know, um, having the most... Uh, how do I describe Lori? Uh, you know, the most educationally minded, always has to be the, truth, the, the old truth and grace thing, you know, Lori being truth all the time and Mel being grace all the time. And I said, I think it'd be a good idea if we get these two to be friends. Um, didn't, it started off a little bumpy, didn't it? You, she drove you out of her mind and vice versa, you know? Um, yeah, Melody, see, Melody never occurred to Melody because Melody was always nice. Um, sorry, Lori, you're not here to defend yourself. But they ended up becoming best of friends and still are. And, you know, Jesus seemed to have a way of doing that. You know, who thinks to bring a tax collector in amongst some guys that were small business owners? Um, and yet, that's exactly, you know, what, what Jesus did. Now, as Jesus comes passing by Matthew's tax booth, Jesus calls him to be one of his core disciples, and Matthew responds. Matter of fact, in Luke's account, in Luke 5.28, uh, the Bible says that Luke, or that Matthew, or Levi, uh, rose up and left all and immediately followed Jesus. Now, him leaving the toll booth thing, do you think that's the equal opposite of Peter and James and John leaving the fishing business? Matthew leaves the toll, the toll booth one immediately. Peter, James, Andrew, John, they leave the fishing business when Jesus called them and they followed. Are those the same, different? Any thought on that? I think there's one big difference between what they did. Anybody? I'm just curious. Maybe you'd come up with this one. Yes. Yeah. When you exactly right when 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 um, 
Matthew leaves his toll booth immediately. Do you think his Roman supervisors are going to be real happy? And if he gets down the road a week or two later and realizes traveling with this itinerant preacher was not a great life, and he wants to go back, maybe they would even put him in jail. I don't know what the penalties would have been. Um, they would, but versus James and John and Peter and Andrew, the fishing, their dad was still keeping the business. Best we know, Zebedee was still there, and they could go back to fishing, and we know Peter does exactly that, doesn't he? Matthew doesn't have, and I'm not saying I'm trying to minimize the response of Peter and Andrew and James and John. I'm not trying to minimize that, but I am trying to identify sometimes when we're called out of bondage or things that we're in, it's not all equal opposite. Um, and Matthew made a difficult, well, he made a, he made a bold choice, an obedient one. Now, the other big thing that comes up in here that I, I always want to deal with every time it comes up is, again, I read certain, I won't name the commentaries, but certain commentaries want to, will identify this is the point where Matthew gets saved. Is this the point where Matthew gets saved? Throw this out there. Another, I'm opening another, another discussion question for the Wednesday night crowd and the online crowd, and it's crickets. I think this is what nobody wants to answer this question because they know me. Say, so you're trying to trick us. Yes, I am. Yes, Jerry? Okay, Jerry's, Jerry's going to go with he doesn't think he was saved. And, and then he became. Anybody else want to, same view, different view? Uh, you know, this is not totally a trick question, only partially. Um, anybody else? Yeah, Bill? Uh-oh, Connie's going, no, no, don't even say it. Yes. Conversion, right? Okay, so you're going to land on the side of discipleship. That's basically. Okay. Anybody else want to venture to anime? He could have been really lonely. <laughs> the first person asking to do anything. <laughs> that's that's a pretty good insight. That, that's a, that's a, that, okay. Okay. And and ultimately, isn't following what God wants us to do in our own best interest? You may say selfish. Oh, now we got it rolling. Yes, yeah, Sarah. Okay. The Puerto Rican rapper, your husband? <laughs> I kill me sometimes. <laughs> you walked right into that one. <laughs> hey, I had Dr. Dreidel here Sunday morning, so there is. You, you never know what's going to happen around here. We don't. I don't know. Will so sorry. Anyway, yes, I'm sorry, Sarah. I do think I've heard of him actually. 
Yes. Amen. And you know, time will tell. I'm not sure. I don't know doctrinally his stance. I know he's like, he's like worth $40 million. He's walking away. Send him a request. He's like one of the top Latin. I mean, he really is like the huh. What? this guy. I was going to say, what's on your playlist, Sarah? What's on your playlist? If you're watching, I'm sorry, I got to, I got to, I got to catch up you folks. Uh, Sarah's talking about a, a, a Puerto Rican rap singer that has recently come out and made a profession of faith publicly, and it's a, he's a big deal down there, and we'll just have to pray he does better than Kanye did, um, you know, um, but, but, yes, and he's going to stop what he's doing, I guess, pretty vile lyrics, and he, amen. It's fascinating. That's a fa- well, I wonder if Matthew had, maybe he had heard the stories, he'd seen, you know, heard about the healings, maybe he was believing this, and, you know, he'd probably been taught, you know, about the Messiah as a child, I would have thought, like, you know, like another, like other Jewish boys, and I wonder if he just, that was the moment where he was like, follow me, and it's like he knew, all right, I believed on you, this is when I asked. Like, I, I don't okay. know that. That, very good, that was, that was... Yes, my wife Jennifer. Yes, Mel. Oh, she, your friend's pointing at you. Kind of sort of like what Sarah has said that to me was like the act of leaving everything that he knew in that instant was in itself an act of faith. Mm. Amen to that. Act of faith. Um, you know, when I, when I asked you, I really was asking a little bit of a trick question because I was asking you, is, do you know if is this is when he got saved? I just don't think Matthew or any of the gospel accounts give us enough total information to make that call any more than can you tell if anybody you walk in and meet is really saved? Do you really know? Now, if you fall on the Calvinist side of things, say, well, if they live good enough, then I know they're saved. Well, bad news for you is you just made salvation maintained by your works. And salvation is not of works. Uh, the bottom line is, I don't really know. He, he may have, because some people, what you're going to hear from you know, John MacArthur and the Gospel According to Jesus is they'll, they'll use this all day long as a, as a salvation story. And that if you're really saved, it means you've, you immediately leave it all and follow him. I don't know if there's anybody in your night that has enough to say that when the moment you got saved, you left it all. Um, I, when you go that approach, you're making that a requirement of salvation, which contradicts a lot of scripture. 
I, I, I don't know. What I will tell you is we do know Matthew was a full-grown adult here to have this position. And what I will tell you, there are times where adults get saved and like this rapper singer that Sarah's talking about, that in a very short amount of time or immediately make drastic changes. That is possible. But just because it is possible, and, and I've known some folks that have made those kind of changes, usually as adults, doesn't always work that way. I've yet to meet a six-year-old that I believe really, that best I could tell, got saved, that came back and said, so you know, Pastor, I'm, I'm telling you, I've left it all behind, Pastor. I'm leaving it all behind. I'm not stealing my little brother's diapers anymore. I'm done, you know. Um, so, so that means apparently little kids can't come to faith in Christ, which contradicts a lot of scripture. Um, so you, do you, I want you to understand that. I don't think the primary purpose of this story is completely on how he was saved, quote-unquote. Um, and I do not believe, as Sarah shared in Melody, same kind of thing, that that, that is salvation is a free gift, but discipleship is hard. And if you follow the grammatical pattern used by all the gospel writers and all the stories of the disciples, the typical thing happens, though, is that when a disciple is called into, quote, full-time ministry, and I want to predicate that, were there some disciples of Jesus that did not follow him everywhere he went? There were. Part, there, were. there were a lot of them. Um, some of them just, that wasn't their calling. But every single one of them, their decision to follow him full-time came after their conversion. Remember, many people get confused, but let me clarify it, just a way of reminder. I think it's pretty clear, at least my opinion, the, the, when we can tell he's talking about conversion is when Jesus shows up on the scene and John Baptist tells him and points at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And John Baptist's whole ministry was to point out the Messiah. And who was there when he pointed out the Messiah? Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. Their conversion was when they recognized and believed that Jesus was the Christ. And then later on, as we saw already in our Life of Messiah study, as they're doing their day-to-day -day stuff, they go back and go fishing, and they're back, and Jesus, one day they're at their workshop, and Jesus pulls by, and there's Peter, James, and John, and P Jesus says, follow me. And they do. But it was this process in my opinion, it's likely that Matthew was saved earlier. I don't know how much earlier, maybe just days earlier. I don't know. And he took on his new name, which would indicate he had some relationship with Jesus to get that name. And here we find that he surrenders to full-time follower and student of Jesus. And that is the primary purpose of the story, is how Matthew becomes one of his main disciples. Um... Remember that Capernaum was the ministry headquarters of Jesus. Remember, Nazareth rejected him. We've studied so far, and so he went to Capernaum. And if you study the life of Jesus, you'll find that that many times we think it's out of Peter, uh, Peter's household. You know, he heals Peter's mother-in-law there. We think, we think he does a lot out of Capernaum, and a lot of his miracles were done. And I think it's highly likely that Matthew had seen some of these very miracles. Matter of fact, let me throw out a suggestion to you. What is it that story does Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, what account does Matthew put directly in front of this one? Anybody remember? 
<laughs> Thank you, Sarah. One, one smart odd Baptist, you know. You read verses 1 to 8 of the, the story right before it is the story of the paralytic, the one we just covered, you know, in the storyline. Remember, the four dropped him down. And what is the whole point of that story? For Jesus to declare what? That he is God, that he is the Messiah, that he can forgive sins. I would say that's a conversion event, wouldn't you? Very likely, in my opinion, maybe that's where Matthew made that decision for conversion and where Jesus went and interacted with him a little bit. And we don't know, maybe Jesus has been interacting before. I don't know. But then we find some days later, short time later, he comes by his tax booth. And, uh, and I don't think it was any accident in that. And Jesus says, follow me. And Matthew says, I'm, I'm good. I'm coming. I'm, and he leaves it all and follows him. And I would tell you, every Christian, when you grow into adult Christianhood, or in other you're growing in your faith, there's going to come a point along the way where God's going to ask you to give it all to him. If, if he hasn't asked you that yet, he will. And you're going to have to cross some bridges as you grow into adulthood. You know, when you grow into your mid-20s and into your 30s, you're going to have to cross some bridges and, and decide, am I, am, I, am I fishing with Jesus or am I doing my own thing? And I'm thankful that salvation is a free gift and it's easy and it's simple, but discipleship is not. And Jesus isn't interested in people that are just going to give him chump change. At some point, he says, come out of your tax booth, which is your whole world of security. And if it is not a, a place that God wants you to be, and he says, I want you to come over here and do this, you, you got to answer the call. You, you, there is no middle choice. You either stay in the tax booth or you follow what God has called you to do. Now, that being said, does God still call people today into quote-unquote full-time ministry? Yes, he does. Now, I know there's this big debate on when you're in ministry, oh, you've got to, are you, have you been called? I think that's a fair question. I think every pastor needs to understand he's been called to the ministry and freely chooses it. However, there are some people out there that teach this, this deal that unless you get this, I guess you get a bright shining light or whatever, anyway, God's looking for volunteers and for us to say, I'm willing to go. And then he will let you know if he's calling you. And I tell people all the time, hey, if you, especially if you're going to be in the preaching ministry, if you don't think God called you to do to get into the, into the ministry, the full-time pastorate, don't do it. Because I got a lot of preacher's kids in here. It, they, it is not an easy life at times. But that does not mean the rest of us who, that, you know, what if, what if God would have told Matthew, no, I want you to stay right there and be a tax collector. The, the rabbis wrote every now and there actually was an honest tax collector or two. They were very rare, but the job could be done honestly. And Matthew could have said, hey, I can stay right in here and make good money. I still got paid well by Rome when all said and done, and I can help the Lord right here. Now, if God would have told him to stay right there, guess where he should have stayed? Right there. But God called him and said, you come follow me. So I, 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 I want you to understand that no matter whether you're called to 100% ministry, the bottom line is God is calling you to be obedience to what he wants you to do. And, and as a Christian, you've got to come to grips with there are some things he's asking you to do in a dimension or a way that he may not ask other believers to be as strong in. One of the biggest things that happens in ministry is when somebody gets a vision for some certain ministry. That's wonderful. But sometimes they expect that every other believer is going to have the same depth of burden. No, maybe God's asking you to spearhead that. And other, I'm not saying other believers shouldn't come along and support. But you may be having to bear the cross of the leadership if that's what God asks you to do. And you say, well, it's going to cost me something. It should and it will. But in the long run, God never is outchanged. 
You're never going to give God more than he gave you, ever. Bottom line is, you want to be used greatly, we got to step out in faith. And if God has called you in some area of your life, like in my notes, you know, this is a little personal, but some of you will get this, some of you won't. You know, if God has called you to do windows, he's called you not to have a window business, he's called you to have a window ministry. If, if he's called you to have a moving business, he's not called you into a movie business, he's called you into a moving ministry. If you're a homemaker and you're raising children, well, that doesn't, yes, it does count. God has called you into a ministry of building little humans. That's the toughest of all the ones I've mentioned so far, by the way. Um, as Christians, we need to see where and what has God called me to do. And oftentimes we're involved in a lot of things that we're doing that may not even be wrong in themselves, but the question is, is God asking you to do that? Just because there's a need in an area doesn't necessarily mean it's your call to do it, other than as a mother it is your call, you know, you know to raise your children. Um, but we're all in full-time ministry. And if you want to be used greatly by God and you want to say, oh, I want God in my life, I want God to be real, well, what are you willing to step out and leave behind? Jesus is not good with saying, I'm going to hang on to all my things the ways I want, and then, God, I want you too. No, not if you want to be a mightily used by God. No. It, it, it takes where you say, by faith, okay, God, you want, me, you want me here? Okay. Not my will, but yours be done. All right, I've got to stop here in a minute. I've got one more verse, and we're going to be done for tonight. Look at verse number 10. It says, And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. So here we read that now Matthew is immediately goes from the tax house to ministry. <laughs> Isn't that what we just talked about? He's going to call you out, and he's not calling you out just to do your own thing. He's calling you out to get involved in some ministry. And here we find that it came to pass. We don't know how long. Maybe it was just hours. Maybe it was days later. And we find that Jesus, and I think Arnold says six other disciples, are eating where? They're eating at Matthew's house. Now, Luke 529, and I think uh, Mark's account, tell us that Levi made a great feast. They ma he made a great feast in his own house. So we know by the other gospel writers, this is actually Matthew's own house. By the way, notice that Mark and Luke both call him Levi, or Levi. Interesting, isn't it? They call him by his birth name. Matthew refers to himself by the name that probably Jesus gave him. One of the biggest things that you and I have to do if you want to be used greatly by God is quit accepting the name that everybody else calls you, even other believers, and take the name that Jesus gives you. If you don't believe that you are named forgiven, you'll live your whole life in guilt. If you don't take the name that, you know, it, in, through you I can do all things, you're going to always be limited by your own limitations and the names that everybody else gives you. Matthew in his gospel says, no, it's in Matthew's own house. Anyway, the first thing Matthew does is bring Jesus into his house. Now, there's a thought. Now, I was wondering what was going on on his satellite radio and stuff and his TV. You know, I don't know. Maybe he still was playing Beyonce and this Puerto Rican rapper that Sarah talked about. Maybe that was on his playlist still. I don't know. I don't know how far he'd come in his uh, sanctification, but I'm sure Jesus would have asked him to change the channel. That would have been my guess. But then Matthew invites all his publican and sinner friends over. Now, the title tonight is Inviting Prostitutes Over for Dinner, and Dr. Frutenbaum points out that in the Jewish context of the day, when they referred to sinners, that was a euphemism for prostitutes. 
Because the reality was in that century, because everybody else had thrown publicans out, if you were in the Jewish community, the only people that would talk to you are other publicans and women of ill repute. So guess who he knew? Other publicans and women of ill repute. So who does he invite over to have dinner with Jesus? Other publicans and people of ill repute. Um, these are probably the only friends he had, like Anna May pointed out. I'm sure this guy was kind of lonely, but, and I love how the Bible tells us that Jesus came and with, with his disciples and sat down with him. The, the publicans and senators came and sat down with him. He didn't just brush them by, he sits down with them. Can you imagine what the Pharisees were talking about on this? Matter of fact, we're going to find out what they talk. They're not real happy about this, and you know, the gossip that was going on. I don't believe Jesus was necessarily, I'm sure he was not accepting the dishonesty that the publicans had and the immorality of, of, of the prostitutes. But at the same time, in this group setting, Jesus sits down with these folks and shows them that he cares. Matthew invites his friends and says, I'm a different guy. I'm going a different direction. And this is the man that's changed my life. You know, this is why in churches, new believers, boy, I wish we had more of them. You know why? Because new believers, especially adult ones that have been living their own life and been doing some things they ought not do, and they got the, maybe they got their life messed up. But you know what they know? They know other sinners. Guess who God wants to save? Other sinners. Sometimes, and I, I, admire, I, I it, when you get saved, you need to hang out primarily with Christians if you want to get discipled because it's, you run with the wrong crowd, you become like the wrong crowd, you need, you need that. But at the same time, doesn't mean that every one of us as Christians, do you know anybody in your life, in your world circle, that's an unbeliever? Sometimes, Christians, especially in our more legalistic circles, we just surround ourselves with people who agree with us. And it's easy and it's lazy. Instead of being willing to sit down with publicans and sinners and show them the love of Jesus and be a witness to them. Now sometimes hard things are done. We're going to find that Jesus has some really confrontational moments with folks that hated what he was about. But on that personal level, Matthew began reaching the people he could reach. He was willing to engage. And that's what we got to do. I'm sorry, I went way long. Sorry, Pastor Danny. He said, oh yeah, I don't have to worry about that tonight, do I? You know, that's why at Open Door, why Track and Treat Outreach we did the other day, you know, at Halloween. Um, you know, people, that's Satan's night. Newsflash, it's not. It's a night that I can engage with community. I can sit down with some sinners. Not that everyone that came to my door is a sinner. You know, Pastor Danny came over after all. Um, this is why this Friday we're going to be at the Prattville Christmas Parade. Do we agree with everything that's going to go on at the City Christmas Parade? Every, every float that goes down the road? Oh, you're identifying with. Nope. But you know what we are going to do? We're going to engage. This, this is why... We're going to cook burgers in the park down by Pratt Park, Lord willing, this spring and summer. Engage. We got to show sinners we care. Amen? Amen. All right. I'm sorry. I went a little long tonight, but uh, took the whole hour. To Pastor Danny, I'm just trying to.
channel you and uh, Brock and you guys get an hour every Sunday night, you know. I'm a, I'm a little jealous. Um, but you can still give me 10 minutes, five, eight minutes, take a couple of prayer requests and pray. Would you do that? Let me close in prayer and say goodbye to all you folks that are online. Thank you for listening. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the teaching of your word. Thank you for the testimony of Matthew. Uh, Lord, I pray that each and every one of us as we... Uh, uh, follow you, help us to hear your call, know what you've called us to do, and be faithful to that calling. In Jesus' name, amen.